You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 4. Mercy in the New Testament. An initial thought to ponder. Please read the Peace Prayer, often attributed to Francis of Assisi, or listen to one of the many musical renditions. I especially like the version by John Michael Talbot. What does this prayer say to you about the posture of mercy? What does it say about the idea of being for others discussed in this chapter? In some ways, the New Testament represents the same notions of mercy as the old, but there is novelty as well. This chapter highlights those new aspects, particularly the way the incarnation of God in Christ shows God's solidarity with us, the way Jesus' ministry extends mercy beyond tribalism to the entire world, and the way Jesus' death and resurrection places mercy at the centre of God's mission to reconcile all things. To begin with, let us note that in the context of God's covenant with the Jewish people, instructions like those in Micah 6.8 refer to more than just their treatment of fellow Jews. God's mandate to the nation of Israel was always to care for the foreigner in their midst and to bless all nations. Jesus confirms this universal scope. For instance, in a conversation about the instructions in Leviticus 19.18 to love your neighbour as yourself, Jesus was once asked, and who is my neighbour? In Luke 10.29. Rather than reply directly, Jesus told a story, the now famous parable of the Good Samaritan. In that story, someone walking from Jerusalem to Jericho was attacked by robbers and left half dead by the side of the road. Two fellow Jews see the beaten one, but both decide not to get involved. Then a Samaritan, a marginalised Jewish ethnic group, saw the person and, moved by a gut-level compassion, stopped to help. At the end of the story, Jesus turns the original question back to the inquirer. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man answers, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus concludes, go and do likewise. The movement of ideas here is fascinating. The conversation starts with a question about eternal life, but quickly moves to the law and then on to love. But the conversation ends with an instruction to show mercy. By connecting mercy to love and to eternal life, Jesus is not saying that we are each individually responsible for rescuing everyone in the world. But if we love our neighbour as ourselves, we will show mercy to whomever we encounter, not just those like us, nor just to those we like. We will act mercifully toward all, regardless of belief, culture, race, sexuality, social status, or any other factor we might hold in common with them or not. 
Importantly for those of us who read this parable as followers of Jesus, the hero of the story does not even comply with any notion of correct religious doctrine. Samaritans were not seen by Jesus' listeners as belonging to the true religion. By depicting a Samaritan as the hero, Jesus is highlighting that you do not have to be a Christian or Jew to show mercy. Mercy is not dependent on right theology. Many have noticed that Jesus flipped the inquirer's question from who is my neighbour to who will you be a neighbour to? In doing this, Jesus emphasised the continuity of his message with God's promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. The mercy of God is to be offered not just to your own people, but to everyone, so that through us all will be blessed. Part of Jesus' game plan is to dislodge our habit of erecting tribal boundaries based on race, culture, politics, ideology, religion, or any wall we attempted to erect around us to keep us separate from them. Subheading, Elios, Erktoro, and other Greek words. And once again, my apologies for mispronunciation in this section. In most cases, when we see mercy in the New Testament, it is a translation of the Greek noun elios, or the associated verb elio. The variant elomontsune is often translated as arms in the sense of giving to the poor. And that word cluster occurs 74 times and signifies an active expression of compassion, sympathy manifested in act. Although it's a Greek word, Elios also plays an important role in the Old Testament. In the 2nd and 3rd centuries BCE, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into a Greek version known as the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the Hebrew chesed was nearly always translated as Elios. As usual with language translation, this is not a perfect match, but nevertheless very revealing. It shows that the Jewish scholars prior to Jesus' birth felt that the essence of the Hebrew word for God's loving kindness was best captured by the Greek word for mercy. A slightly stronger word translated as compassion or mercy is the Greek verb oiktero. This word, along with its noun and adjectival forms, occurs ten times. For instance, in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. End quote. Thirdly, the Greek noun splanknon, which literally means the bowels, is sometimes translated as mercy. This word has a visceral feel to it, as though the experience of compassion burns within one's inner organs. New Testament writers sometimes add emphasis by combining those three terms, for instance, by the tender mercy, that's the splanchna elios of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us, in Luke one seventy eight, Paul also uses the evocative phrase splankna oiktomo in Colossians 3.12, which may be best translated as heartfelt compassion. Those primary words for mercy are closely related to several other Greek words in the ecology of love. Hileos, whose primary meaning is propitious, favourable or forgiving, occurs eight times and is occasionally translated as mercy. For instance, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's Hebrews 8.12, quoting Jeremiah 31.34. Agape, meaning godlike love, occurs over 300 times and often expresses God's gracious, merciful kindness to us. 
Charis, which occurs almost 200 times, is normally translated as grace, but also has connotations of gift and kindness. Aphemi occurs over 160 times. Its literal meaning is to release or dismiss, but in over a third of cases, it clearly refers to forgiveness. If you go by word counts, the new RSV translation uses mercy, mercies, merciful, 65 times in the New Testament, compared to 98 in the Old Testament. Just counting mercy in English, however, can be quite misleading, as we have seen a variety of words in Hebrew, Greek and English orbit around the idea of mercy. If we count the whole constellation of mercy, grace, forgiveness, compassion, pity, and loving kindness, then the statistics are more like 570 instances in the new and 770 in the old. Subheading, Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is a distinctively Christian foundation for understanding the nature and source of mercy. The communal identity of God as three in one can be read back into the Old Testament, but only became fully articulated as the young church sought to understand the nature of God in the light of Jesus. In the New Testament, numerous verses show overlapping characteristics between God as creator and metaphorical father, the human Jesus, and the promised spirit who would comfort and guide. Several verses bring all three aspects of God together. None of those biblical sources claims that the Father, Son and Spirit are all co-equally God, yet as the community of Jesus' followers sought to make sense of their experiences, they concluded that although there is only one God, God exists in three distinct persons. Their Jewish theological heritage emphasised that God is a person in the sense that God has a personality, an individual identity as a subject rather than just an object, a who rather than a what, an I who is able to relate to other persons. Standing firmly within that monotheistic worldview, their experience of life, death and resurrection of Jesus led them to believe that Jesus was not only a human but also truly God. Layered on top of that, their interactions with the ongoing presence of God after Jesus' ascension led them to believe that the Holy Spirit was also a person and truly God. A variety of Jewish, Islamic and Christian theologians claim that mercy is an essential attribute of God. By essential, they mean God is merciful, independent of anything outside God. Whether that can be true depends on your conception of both mercy and God. A Christian Trinitarian conception approaches the issue slightly differently than other monotheistic positions. To the Lutheran Oswald Bayer, quote, the triune God's entire being is merciful. End quote. But, says Wilhelm Lowy, that only works if mercy is not a response to misery. For, quote, insofar as it's a relation to love and mercy to misery, it, that mercy, cannot be older than misery itself. End quote. Likewise, Tim Keller believes that the first act of mercy was when God provided clothes for Adam and Eve following the fall. If mercy is defined as a response to misery, then mercy can only come into existence after misery, and hence can only be a contingent rather than a necessary attribute of God. In Catholic discussion, this same contradiction was noted by Daniel Maloney in response to Walter Casper's claim that mercy is the fundamental attribute of God. Says Maloney, quote, This sounds profound, but does not withstand examination. Mercy is a virtue that requires someone who needs mercy, someone with some sort of sin or other imperfection. 
The Father is not merciful to the Holy Spirit. He loves the Holy Spirit, but there's nothing imperfect about the Holy Spirit that he needs the Father's mercy. For mercy to be essential to God, as Caspar holds, it would mean that God could not exist without expressing mercy. But since God does not show mercy to himself, it would not be possible for him to exist without there also being sinners in need of his mercy, and that notion is absurd. End of quote. Maloney is fine with love being an essential attribute because the persons of the Trinity can express love to each other. God's love predates creation, but mercy, which can only be expressed in the compassionate response to a need, only became evident after creation. There's no theological problem in a Trinitarian framework with mercy flowing from the eternal love of God. That's not so easy to argue from a Jewish or Islamic framework, because within non-Trinitarian monotheism, even claiming love as an essential attribute of God is problematic. For love to be an essential attribute, it must have always been an attribute, independent of any other being. But before the creation of someone other than God, there was nothing for God to love except God, and narcissistic love cannot easily be described as a virtue worthy of God. In a Trinitarian framework, however, the source of love is not narcissistic, but other-centred, Love is not a means of addressing imperfection, but of caring in relationship to others and of maintaining community. The mutual relationships within the Trinity were sustained by love prior to the creation of this world and prior to any mercy being shown towards the needs in this world. This is similar to the approach of John Barclay, who sees grace rather than mercy as an essential attribute of God. To Barclay, grace a stance of loving favour toward all things, is expressed within the Trinity, but the manifestation of grace in the form of mercy depends on the existence of someone in need external to God. My own definition of mercy, a gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion, places me on the side of Lowy, Keller, Barclay and Maloney, rather than Caspar, Luther and Bayer. Mercy can only be expressed once one has seen someone in need and felt compassion for them. The Christian concept of Trinity sees relationship in the heart of divinity, and in that relational dance sees pure love. Creation too is an expression of God's love, even grace and kindness, but not an example of God's mercy. Contrary to Maloney and Keller, however, I do not think mercy depends upon the fall. Sin is not a prerequisite, for mercy takes many forms apart from the forgiveness of sin. Mercy can be a compassionate response to any need, certainly to the suffering of sin, but also to physical, emotional and social needs. God showed mercy to Adam in providing food to eat, air to breathe, and a companion in Eve, prior to any moral need arising from sin. As creator and metaphorical father, God shows mercy in giving us all that is physically needed for life. As Jesus, God shows mercy through living among us, pronouncing forgiveness to us, and removing the fear of death. As Holy Spirit, God shows mercy by guiding us toward truth, raising our awareness of our own brokenness, comforting us in times of need, and empowering us to overcome evil with good. The Bible depicts the whole world as infused with God and with God's grace. As a consequence of that common grace, even people who do not align their beliefs and practices to God can experience and show mercy. 
But if you grant that the whole world was designed and created by the Judeo-Christian God, then whatever the proximal cause of mercy might be in each person's life, the ultimate cause is, by necessity, God. Subheading, Incarnation Against the backdrop of God communicating with humanity through dreams, angels and prophets, the primary innovation proclaimed in the New Testament is the coming of God onto the world stage in person. In the Incarnation, the eternal and infinite God who created all things became embodied and finite to share our human existence. Jesus, the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, became truly human. The great high priest, greater than Abraham and even Moses, who was the only person since Adam and Eve who had seen God's face and lived, pitched his tent among us. Such claims should stagger our minds and hearts. The idea that God became human is virtually incomprehensible, a stunning revelation that turns our conception of God upside down. The Incarnation was itself an event of mercy, the wildest act of mercy conceivable. Jesus was the gift of God, from God to us, a gift of extreme kindness inspired by God's compassion for us. This gift of God's own self was an act of solidarity with us, a sign that God did not consider the human form repugnant or a failed experiment to be thrown into the garbage. No, God came among us to affirm our value and to show us what abundant life can look like. First century Israelites were waiting for God to show them mercy. And just prior to the birth of Jesus, Mary and Zechariah both declare that the promised mercy has come. In an early Christian hymn, the depth of God's compassion and humility is shown through God giving up the privileges of divinity to take on the very nature of a servant. Pope John Paul II correctly observed that, quote, Christ confers on the whole of the Old Testament tradition about God's mercy a definitive meaning. Not only does he speak of it and explain it by the use of comparisons and parables, but above all, he himself makes it incarnate and personifies it. He himself, in a certain sense, is mercy. End of quote. As we saw in the previous chapter, God's mercy is evident in the Old Testament, but in the New we see demonstrated in Christ the fullness of that mercy. From the earliest of Jesus' recorded speeches, mercy played a central role. In a synagogue in Nazareth, he read the words of the prophet Isaiah and applied them to himself, quote, The Spirit of the Lord has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In this declaration of mercy, Jesus deliberately omitted the concluding phrase in the passage from Isaiah, the day of vengeance of our God. In doing so, Jesus implied that he came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy through mercy rather than through vengeance. Similarly, in the Sermon on the Mount, he asserted that one characteristic of a blessed life is the ability to give and receive mercy, an idea that may be the keynote of everything he proclaimed. That theme is carried forward in Matthew's Gospel by Jesus' repeated references to Hosea 6.6, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Matthew 9.11, Jesus was castigated for hanging around tax collectors and sinners, but in his defence, Jesus said that his mission was to show mercy to the sick and sinners rather than to expel them, as the Pharisees do. 
Later, in Matthew 12.2, Jesus was reprimanded for allowing his followers to harvest corn to eat on the Sabbath, but in his defence Jesus pointed out precedents in the Old Testament and said his desire was to nourish his followers rather than force them to continue to be hungry. In both cases, the Pharisees wanted to apply a law strictly for the sake of ritual purity, but Jesus claimed that responding to people's need with mercy is more important. This is another example of Jesus quoting the Old Testament in a way that reinterprets its original meaning. To a reader of Hosea, the verse meant, I, God, desire my people to show mercy rather than making sacrifices to me. But Jesus uses the verse to mean I, God, prefer to show mercy rather than demand sacrifice. In other words, the God incarnated in Christ wants to save people rather than sacrifice them. Stephen Pickard sees this movement highlighting the deeper scandal of God's mercy because, quote, it entirely overturns received notions of what God desires. The Gospels repeatedly describe Jesus as being moved with compassion for the people he meets. A man with leprosy, a widow whose son had died, a hungry crowd, and so on. Paul uses the Hebrew linguistic device of parallelism to emphasize that the God of Jesus was the God of all comfort, and that the Father of Jesus was the Father of compassion. That's in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Note, however, the distinction I've already made between the feeling of compassion and the action of mercy. Simply looking on compassionately is not mercy. Mercy requires a certain type of action in response to that compassion. Pope John Paul II described this well when he wrote, quote, the true and proper meaning of mercy does not consist only in looking, however penetratingly and compassionately, at moral, physical or material evil. Mercy is manifested in its true and proper aspect when it restores to value, promotes and draws good from all the forms of evil existing in the world and in man. Understood in this way, mercy constitutes the fundamental content of the messianic message of Christ, and the constitutive power of his mission. End of quote. Mercy is not just the fundamental content of Jesus' message, but the underlying power animating all that he did. Jesus not only preached mercy and felt compassion, but he also demonstrated mercy consistently. His willingness to die for our sakes is clearly the most remarkable act of mercy, and I'll say more about that shortly. But let us not undervalue the many acts of mercy he showed during his life toward a wide variety of needs, spiritual, social and physical. For example, recall the man with paralysis whose friends lowered him through a roof. Jesus both healed his legs and forgave him. There was no precondition, nor did Jesus request that the man should respond in any way. The healing was not even based on the man's faith, but on that of his friends. Recall the two blind men who cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. They were not asking for forgiveness, but physical healing, and Jesus responded to that specific need by enabling them to see. His only condition was that they should tell nobody, a condition they ignored. Likewise, Jesus calmed storms, healed many physical ailments, provided wine at a wedding, fed crowds of followers, and raised the dead. All these were signs of his authority, and filled with layers of symbolic meaning, but they were also displays of mercy, gifts of extreme kindness, 
motivated by compassion in response to the immediate needs of people around him. In all these ways, Jesus showed a way of being that differs radically from normal human self-centeredness. Jesus is not unique in this, for other people have also lived and died for others. Many great saints and humanitarians set aside opportunities for self-advancement because of a philosophical commitment to some higher purpose. In contrast, most of us live for ourselves, for our own survival, our own benefit, with perhaps some extension of that benefit to the people closest to us. The motivation for the Incarnation was that God loved the entire world, including but not limited to its human inhabitants, and so for Jesus that higher purpose was to seek and save the lost. Whereas the very essence of most people's existence is being for self, the Incarnation shows the most radical example of being for others. In this other-centeredness, the Incarnation demonstrates God's recipe for human flourishing. The doctrine of Incarnation goes beyond the theological mystery of God becoming human and beyond the mercy shown in the life and teaching of Jesus. The Incarnation is also a call to us, individually and communally, to express mercy. Thus, Jesus said to his disciples, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Notice that in this verse, Jesus did not call us to merely act mercifully, but to be, or even become, merciful. In other words, we are to take on, or grow into, the merciful character of God. We are to live with a posture of mercy, or, as we have already seen in the words of Micah, we are to love mercy. As the body of Christ, we too live incarnationally, embodying the Spirit of God in our own communities. In that way, we too become the sight of God's mercy in the world. Subheading. Mercy and Conditionality According to Paul In the early discussion of Hosea, I considered a certain type of ambiguity around whether God's relationship with us is conditional or not. We saw that two motivations coexist comfortably within God, a conditional component situated within covenant and a parent-like component outside the bounds of any covenant obligation. Mercy sits within the second component. In the context of the New Testament, there's now something further to note about mercy as an unconditional gift. The depiction of divinity in the Bible is of a giving God who loves creation and who pours out grace upon grace to bless everyone. Many of God's gifts we easily take for granted, air to breathe, food to eat, warmth, water, birdsong, companionship, starry nights, moonlight over a calm sea, and a thousand other marvels that nourish our bodies and souls. According to James, God gives generously to all who ask without finding fault. And Paul repeatedly notes that God's giving is without favoritism. Beyond the givens that form the background and context for life itself, the gifts of grace and mercy are a key theme in the writings of Paul. What do you have that you did not receive? He asked the believers in Corinth. And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? British academic John Barclay provides the most sustained analysis of this theme in his highly influential 2015 book, Paul and the Gift, and its later companion, Paul and the Power of Grace. In both books he treats gift and grace as virtually synonymous, and periodically throws in mercy as a third synonym. 
after I wrote to him to ask for a clearer statement on the relationship between grace and mercy, his return email included this helpful statement, quote, I see mercy as the more all-embracing term, a stance of loving favour toward all things that is expressed in a variety of forms. Mercy is a form of grace as compassion on the suffering or the sinful. End of quote. Keeping that distinction in mind, we can read what he wrote about grace and think about how it applies to mercy. First, he notes that grace, and hence mercy, is used in the New Testament to encompass three things that we might otherwise think were different. Grace can be something that is charming, attractive, or an object of favour. Grace can be a gift, favour, or benefit, or an attitude of benevolence. Grace can also be the returning of gratitude or thanks. Barclay then considers what the perfection of a gift or grace might look like. Every Christian theological tradition acknowledges the importance of grace, but there has been considerable disagreement about the shape of that grace. Part of that disagreement springs from different understandings of gift, which, as I've already discussed, has been a topic of much recent philosophical debate. Consequently, my own take on the nature of gift will influence how I respond to Barclay's understanding of Paul's understanding of grace. Perfectly straightforward, really. To make sense of the differing opinions, Barclay proposes six possible attributes of the perfect gift or grace. First, superabundance. Gifts that are huge, lavish, unceasing, extravagant, etc. Second, singularity. That the giver's character is purely giving, consistently good and beneficial. Third, priority. When the gift comes prior to anything the recipient does, rather than a response to a request. Fourth, incongruity. When giving is not based on the recipient's worthiness. Fifth, efficacy. Gifts that change the recipient with a good and lasting effect. And sixth, non-circularity. Gifts that require no reciprocity, return or exchange. Buckley does not propose that all six of those attributes apply to the biblical picture of grace, only that they are possible ways to discuss the perfection of grace. Many of the varied historical positions on grace can be described in terms of which combination of these six features a person believes to apply to God. Augustine, for instance, emphasised the incongruity of grace, that nothing we could do would make us merit God's grace, its priority, that grace comes to us before we move toward God, and its efficacy, that God's grace is irresistible. Martin Luther, on the other hand, emphasised the incongruity of grace alongside its non-circularity, that grace is given for our own sake, with no expectation that we could do anything to benefit God in return. Next, Buckley undertakes a close reading of Galatians and Romans to document Paul's view on grace. In both letters he finds grace to be at the centre of Paul's theology and the gift of Christ to be at the centre of that grace. Quote, For Paul, the Christ gift is most fundamentally not the giving of a thing, but the giving of a person. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. End of quote. In both Galatians and Romans, Paul shows the incongruity of God's grace. It is not only given without regard to one's social status, gender or ethnic background, but actively given while we were still sinners. 
This is so fundamental that Barclay asserts that, quote, the gospel stands or falls with the incongruity of grace, end of quote. Barclay also understands Paul to be saying that the gift of Christ is necessarily circular, that is, it must be followed by a different set of orientations, allegiances, and obligations. Quote, the grace of God is unconditioned, that's without prior considerations of worth, but not unconditional, if we mean by that the non-circular perfection of grace that expects nothing in return. Grace, for Paul, is not a gift from a disengaged benefactor who would rather be left alone. It is not a donation with no strings attached. To the contrary, personal and social practice aligned to the good news is integral to what Paul means by faith or trust. End of quote. At first glance, Barclay's claim that grace is unconditioned but conditional refutes my own stance that mercy is a free gift that incurs no debt. We agree that God's gift, whether viewed as grace or mercy, is offered to all people without preconditions. But where Barclay sees post-conditions, I do not. The difference, however, may not be as significant as it first appears. Part of what looks like a difference of understandings reflects the differing scope of Barclay's grace and my mercy. Paul and the power of grace explicitly addresses Paul's instructions to readers who are already believers in the Christ gift, and focuses on that specific epitome of grace, which is the salvific life, death and resurrection of Jesus. To that audience, Paul's presentation of what it means to have received God's gift most certainly includes expectations of how they should now live in the light of that gift. Quote, Jesus makes clear that strong expectations are laid on those who are welcomed into the kingdom. The forgiven are expected to forgive, Matthew 6.12. The fig tree is expected to bear fruit, Luke 13.6-9. The disciples are called to serve, Mark 10.41-45. The wealthy are expected to give, Luke 19.1-10. And the loved are commanded to love, John 13.34-35. End of quote. Grace and mercy, however, are far broader than that context. Having received the Christ gift, you will inevitably live differently, but such inevitability does not apply to grace or mercy in general, because they are often given without being fully received. Offering mercy certainly entails a hope for its future effect. Mercy is shown to someone in the hope that the act will alleviate their immediate suffering, in the hope that the recipient will appreciate the compassionate intention behind the gift, even in the hope that the person will be transformed into becoming more merciful themselves. But such hopes are not requirements. The lack of appropriate response to mercy should not prevent it being given, nor does a lack of response mean that the gift of mercy ceases to be mercy. The free gift of mercy is not retrospectively annulled by the presence or absence of any post-condition. To be as clear as possible, my belief in mercy as a gift implies that it cannot depend on any pre- or post-conditions. Mercy is nevertheless an intentional act. Mercy is offered with a purpose, with hopes, and even with expectations about its effect. But intentions, purposes, hopes, and expectations do not constitute conditions the gift is given regardless of whether the hopes or expectations are met. 
A further reason why Barclay's analysis has led him in a different direction from mine is our interpretive lens. In Paul and the Power of Grace, Barclay reads the work of Jesus through the lens of Paul, whereas my Anabaptist stance reads all scripture, including Paul's letters, through the lens of Jesus. If we accept Paul's words that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, and Jesus' own words that whoever has seen me has seen the Father, then the grace and mercy of God will be illuminated by what we see in the life and teaching of Jesus. As an example, recall the ten lepers who called out to Jesus to show them mercy. Luke makes no suggestion that Jesus evaluated their worthiness before healing them all. When only one returned to give thanks, there is no indication that Jesus rescinded his healing of the others. Their praise might have been hoped for, but did not constitute a post-condition. The same can be said for virtually all Jesus' miracles. He met people's needs, with the hope that they would be transformed by the experience, but his mercy was never conditional upon such transformation. To the contrary, the Gospels explicitly record cases where Jesus knew people would not respond positively to his kindness, and yet he continued to show them grace. The prime example is Judas. Jesus washed his feet and shared an intimate meal with him, knowing he would betray him. Through his actions and words, Jesus encouraged us to do good without expecting anything in return. Since Jesus is God incarnate, we must deduce that God gives without requiring anything in return. When Barclay digs into the shape of what he sees as Paul's post-conditions, he notes that they primarily relate to how believers should live within a new community in which grace is central. When Paul instructs the Galatians and Romans about their response to the grace of God, he says they should nurture the fruit of the Spirit, refuse to require circumcision, care for each other, offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, bless those who persecute them, etc. These are not ways that believers repay God for the grace they have received, but ways that they participate in that grace. Instead of paying it back, we are enjoined to pay it forward, so that God's grace is shared and passed around. Quote, Paul expects the grace of God in Christ to cascade through the life of communities. End of quote. And that cascade of grace is exactly what I have referred to as a network of reciprocity. In this sense, I can completely agree with Barclay's use of the term circularity as one dimension of the perfect gift. To participate in God's grace is to be part of a joyful community of giving in which cascading generosity brings both joy and sustenance to all. This is a hoped-for result of grace and mercy, and not a post-condition. It's not a debt incurred or a requirement to pay God back, but the acceptance of an invitation to flourish within a community of grace. Subheading. Redemption and Reconciliation. Two more interlocking themes in the New Testament show the centrality of mercy to God's mission. God's work in the world is teleological. Its intent or purpose is the redemption of humanity and the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. Both of those outcomes, redemption and reconciliation, are enabled by God's mercy brought to us through Christ. Paul wrote in a letter to his apprentice Titus, quote, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. End of quote. 
we are saved through the goodness and loving kindness of God, that is, through God's mercy. Such a claim immediately raises the question of what we are saved from, and to that question the New Testament gives many answers. In the context of the letter to Titus, we are saved from our foolish enslavement to various passions, our disobedience to God, and the resulting envy and hatred that mar our relationships with each other. In a similar verse that links several aspects of mercy, Paul wrote, quote, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. Paul himself is one of the Bible's paramount examples of God's lavish grace. After approving of the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, Paul became a leading persecutor of the fledgling community of Jesus' followers. Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners, and noted that he received mercy from God not because of being good, nor in spite of being good, but explicitly because he was so bad. As discussed in a later chapter, forgiveness is God's response to our moral waywardness and one of the primary expressions of mercy. Paul understood that this forgiveness is a gracious gift, not doled out begrudgingly, but expansively lavished on us. The conduit for this mercy is Jesus' blood, that is, his death, and the result is our redemption. In Christian thinking, redemptive salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. The riches of God's grace are shown in Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross, through which we see the very essence of mercy, its ultimate expression. Let's consider for a minute how that self-sacrifice works. First, part of our understanding of the Incarnation is that Jesus' humanity enables him to empathise with us, and yet take the role of High Priest to atone for our sins. Quote, He had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful High Priest in the service of God, and to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. That's Hebrews 2.17. Second, notice that the New Testament repeatedly asserts that Jesus gave himself for us. That is, although people deserted, betrayed, accused, arrested, convicted and crucified Jesus, there is a deeper sense in which Jesus consciously chose to be killed. In his life and his death, Jesus acted for us. He gave himself over to a tortuous death on our behalf. Third, notice an important distinction between two uses of the word sacrifice. In many contexts, including the sacrificial of the Old Testament, to sacrifice means to forcefully take something and violently destroy it. But there are other contexts in which sacrifice is neither coercive nor violent. Parents, for instance, may give up their time, their sleep, even their career, for the sake of their children. According to Jesus, the greatest expression of love would be to give up your life for your friends. These are true sacrifices, but willingly chosen rather than coerced. To think that Jesus' death was a sacrifice of the first kind, a violent murder demanded by God, is a mistake. Rather, Jesus' death was a sacrifice of the second kind. He willingly gave up his life for his friends, even for those who positioned themselves as enemies. In doing so, he solidified the Old Testament intimations that God has no interest in sacrifices of the first kind, and abolished the need for any future sacrifices of that kind. 
Fourth, the self-sacrifice of Jesus was one act in a deliberate plan. Jesus allowed himself to be killed, in some ways precipitated his own death, in order to bring salvation to all, to bring us back to God, to redeem us, to set us free from the fear of death, to release us from the tragedies of our lives, and instead become enthusiastic about doing good. Last, compare the self-sacrifice of Jesus to my definition of mercy, a gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion. Jesus' voluntary self-sacrifice was a gift, the greatest gift of love. It was an extreme kindness, made especially surprising by the fact that we were unworthy of it. It was motivated by God's never-ending love and compassion for us and for all creation. In all those ways, the self-sacrifice chosen by Jesus testifies to his fundamental being for others. His whole life and death were other-directed, for us. The New Testament passages discussed above show that one of the central purposes of God's mercy through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is the redemption of individual people, indeed of all people. Individual salvation is not, however, the whole of the good news. Regardless of how important the theme of redemption is, that's only part of a bigger picture. In Zechariah's song of praise to the infant John the Baptist, he not only claims that God's mercy has finally arrived, but also explicitly links that mercy to redemption, rescue, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and peace. The following verses from Paul's hand make the same connections, but also extend our understanding by claiming that the ultimate goal of God's mercy is the restoration of everything throughout all creation. Quote, the Father has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. That's Colossians 1. 13 to 20. Note how this passage starts with an assertion that the purpose of the Father is to redeem individuals, but after describing the essence of the Incarnation, it then reveals God's deeper plan to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. Clearly this goal is achieved through Jesus. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, and it is God in Jesus who both redeems and reconciles. The term reconcile has several interrelated connotations. One is about the restoration of an original intention, making things as they were supposed to be. Another connotation is shown in the way two friends who have drifted apart because of some conflict are brought back together. We say they have reconciled their differences. A third connotation is financial. A bank reconciliation process starts with two sets of records two versions of the truth, and attempts to bring them into alignment. So it is with the work of God through Jesus. 
the whole creation is restored to God's intention, enmity is resolved, and everything brought into alignment with Jesus, reconciled to himself. Each of these connotations adds something to our understanding of God's plan to reconcile all things through Jesus. Through the mercy of God, everything in heaven and on earth will be drawn into harmony so that all creation, including each of us, finally plays the same glorious tune. This grand plan sits behind every act of mercy. The mercy depicted in the New Testament not only deals compassionately with people's immediate physical needs, but also addresses our deeper existential need to be saved from all manner of brokenness and alienation. Even more, mercy in the New Testament draws all creation into God's ultimate goal, in which heaven and earth are reunified and every creature can flourish. This is the salvation we are to announce, by words and actions, to the ends of the earth. It is why Paul calls us ministers of reconciliation. We are part of this grand scheme to proclaim the mercy of God so that all may be redeemed, and so that everything in heaven and on earth may be reconciled to God's original intention in Christ. Subheading. Something to consider. What conditions do you place on mercy? In practical ways, how might developing a habit of mercy make you an instrument of peace? This chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook. <laughs>